Hey everyone, back again. Today we're starting Spinoza's Ethics. Now before jumping into it, hi, I'm David. I explain philosophical concepts and ideas and ways to make them accessible to you. So if you're new here, you can go and see my more than 300 episodes I already have up. If you found this as a podcast, you're going to be able to find it on YouTube where there's sometimes videos. If you found this on YouTube, you're going to be able to find it as a podcast, all the same names, all that stuff, pretty much any platform, and there shouldn't be any ads, which is great, right? If you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on TikTok at David Guineo or at theory philosophy or on Twitter at David Guineo. Links for all such things in the description. You can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but no pressure to do that. You can just help me out by liking, sharing, subscribing, telling your friends. Who knows? They might get a kick out of it. I've also been told I have a soothing voice. So if you know someone who struggles to sleep, maybe I can put them to sleep. Uh, but yeah, I won't. I swear I'm not putting myself down. I think that that's actually funny. Okay, so Spinoza's Ethics. Last week, we covered his incomplete text titled On the Improvement of the Understanding, which would be helpful to listen to if you haven't already listened to it, but not totally necessary. I'll explain everything you need to know. This is going to be the first of five parts on Spinoza's Ethics. And the text itself is broken into five parts. So each part I do is going to cover each part of the ethics, which might mean some episodes are going to be longer than others, some shorter. I try to keep a, them all around the same like 40 minute mark, but you know, it's hard when I do it this way, but this way it'll be easy to follow and everyone will know what's going on. So part one, that is of the ethics of God, titled of God. So as we established in the last episode I did on the improvement of the understanding, when Spinoza writes about God, he often uses the term nature uh, to replace the term God. He uses these terms interchangeably. Now, this is because for Spinoza, he's looking at the totality of the universe, of the natural world, of everything, as being all part of God, maybe being God itself in its infinite totality. If I can, you know, that's not a term you'd find in his work, but, it, you know, can something be a totality if it's infinite i don't know but just to give you an idea now this text is not really a text it's broken into parts like i've already suggested but then each part is like a laundry list of points where he goes through and provides propositions based off of some definitions and axioms that he lays out at the beginning of every part so this part one concerned with god sets out the following definitions before we can proceed. So I'm going to go really slowly here and, you know, because this stuff is important to know, but I'm, you know, th these terms are going to keep coming up again and again. And so don't sweat it if you don't pick it up right away, like what each definition is. So the first definition is of the following idea, something being the cause of itself. So if something is the cause of itself, it is a thing whose essence involves existence. That is, it is not reliant upon anything else to come into existence other than itself. It is the cause of itself. So its existence is wrapped up with the conditions that make its existence possible. And if that is the case, that means it exists according to its will. And I want to put a little asterisk next to the term will, uh, because it's a very complicated thing for Spinoza, 
but if some it's something that comes into existence because of itself therefore its existence as a cause in itself is aligned with its essence that like purpose behind it the thing that like underwrites its true character that is its true character so that was the first definition the second one finity you know like the opposite of infinity finity finity that is embracing dualism from for spinoza embracing dualism he suggests that finitude implies that there's always something exterior to fill empty space so for example a body a physical human body is finite because it is accompanied by other bodies like there's other people around i'm not and you aren't the only person in existence as far as we know so because of that we know that our body is finite it has a limit and it is a limit that is accompanied by other bodies with other limits similarly with thought in the mind it is limited as well any thought is limited by other thoughts the duration of time that you spend thinking about an idea is going to be cut short by thinking about a new idea so of course it's limited in that way however he specifies that a thought can't be limited by a body so this is the first and i'm i'm adding a narrative to this text because otherwise it would just be like me reading a list of things so in that sense you know this is a very this is a brazen thing to say but after listening to what i do on the this text you really don't need to read it <laughs> you really don't because i'm going to be covering every single point uh but you know for the full experience go read it so anyways let me go back so what he provides here when he says that the mind is not limited by the body or a thought is not limited by the body is it, this is an important moment because it lays out the distinction that he will maintain throughout the course of this text between mind and body however although he recognizes that they are distinct he suggests that they are very much intertwined you can't have uh, a mind in the way that we understand it without a body and you can't have a body without a, really a mind because your mind is what perceives the body as we perceive it uh, another mind of another alien species might perceive things totally differently like whatever these things are intertwined yet are very different so it's just keep that in your head third definition here substance definition of substance that which is understood in itself and not through appeal to anything else so it's like a cause in itself that brings us to the fourth one an attribute these are, all, these are super important terms, and I'm going to explain them more as we go on. But an attribute is a quality of a substance. Like, for example, thought of the mind or extension of the body. So if you're paying attention, this is probably the image you have right now. That in the universe that we see, there's substance and there are attributes of those substances so a substance would be like matter which our body is part of matter right we are we are one part of the totality of all matter in the universe and that body extends so far into space like for example i'm six feet tall and i know that because of human metrics but i know that i take up space and the actual amount of space i take up is the attribute like it's the you know measurement of how much space i take up 
where thought is the same thing to the mind. Like a thinking person, at least according to Descartes, 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 can <laughs> a thinking person can attain different degrees of enlightenment. You know, certain things open to them through that attribute. So we have these two primary substances. We have extension in space, like the fact that we take up space. And then we have the mind that thinks, that takes up no space. Because we can think about an object without actually taking up space. I can think of a chair in my brain, in my mind's eye. It's not actually taking up space. Doesn't mean it's any really less real. Like to me, I can still conjure up that image, uh, but it's not taking up any space. So what does this mean for Spinoza? Well, this means that these universals, that is all humans have minds and all humans take up space, are part of a broader system of nature, which can be equated with God, that bestows us these possibilities. So for instance, God embraces both mind and body, however, in a way that is incomprehensible to us. So we are only instances of God's entire plan uh, if God can be said to have a plan, or the entire order of nature. We are just instances of that process or of this system. So that brings us here into modes, modes of substances. So a mode is a different instance of a substance, like different bodies or different thoughts that are like still examples of the entire system of God's uh, God's plan, God's will, nature, that is the capacity for thought. Modes are those specific thoughts we each have. We are all thinking, however, we each have different thoughts. So what is universal is that propensity for thought. What is um, not universal is like the specific thoughts we might have. Same with uh, the same with space. We all exist in space, but the amount that we take up in space might be different. The speed at which we move in space might be different. So as I said earlier, this is all part of God. And so that gives us, that pushes us here into the next definition, which is the definition of God itself. So God for Spinoza is the absolutely infinite being with infinite attributes that express its eternal and infinite essence. So we qualify the difference here between absolute infinite from just infinite in that absolute refers to all infinites in a single term, whereas just infinite could refer to, to anything like an, an infinite line or an infinite time or I don't know, infinite possibilities of monkeys typing on typewriters, whatever. So absolute infinite is the entirety of all possibility that is permitted through the laws of nature which is what he demonstrated in on the improvement of the understanding that we have to become more and more familiar with nature's properties and nature's laws so as not to fall victim to you know our perceptions which can lead us astray and as we become more attuned with nature's laws we become more attuned with god god's will god's plan if it can be said that god has a will or has a plan which will problematize as we go on so I had to do a bunch of research for all this. So I, you know, I just want to make this as clear as possible for you here. So we have our substances and our attributes, and they are simply just thought and extension. 
okay? The, the, these are our substances and our attributes. Our modes would be like, you know, an individual mind or an individual body. However, when we talk about God, we aren't talking about modes per se. We are instead talking about infinite modes. And so what those look like are instead of just a mind, like a single person's mind, we have the infinite intellect for Spinoza. That is the entirety of all possible intellect in, you know, this godlike form that we don't, you know, we can only speculate about. We don't really know is there. But in any case, we can, you know, still infer that it might exist. Now, that is the infinite mode to the substance of thought. Now, to the substance of extension or existing in space, for God, well, for us, it, our mode is just like an individual person or any individual thing in the space it takes up, its shape, size, color, whatever. For God, we are talking here about motion and rest, which is how everything works. Everything exists according to the laws of motion and rest. Is something at motion or is it not? Is it, you know, is uh, even at its like molecular level, like what is moving? How does that give everything possibility? Everything works according to this principle of motion and rest, which can also be understood, I'm going to say to you, through the principle of cause and effect. Everything exists according to the law of cause and effect. If anything didn't, if there was any effect without a cause, then it would be a purely spontaneous event. It would be like God itself created it. It would be, it would fall out of the domain of nature and it would just be something that existed like transcendentally, but that wouldn't happen. So that reveals to us how like nature works so perfectly, you know, it creates every possibility uh, that it can permit. It is a cause in itself and yada, yada, yada. Anyways, just trying to make this as clear as possible. Okay, so we've covered God now into the seventh definition. Uh, th this definition refers to the difference between what is free and what is necessary. So a free thing exists from the necessity of its own, that is, alone. So it determines itself. Whereas a necessary thing is determined to existence and action in a fixed and prescribed manner. That is, it's, you know, it, it can't do anything other than it is meant to do. So there's so much to unpack here. Like what exactly... Spinoza, to criticize him a little bit, is is very good at over-explaining the obvious and under-explaining the unobvious. So in this case here, perhaps we could think of a necessary thing like um, a plant's petals that catch the sun sunlight. That is its necessary function in relation to the plant, that it doesn't do anything. At least I think. I, I'm not a botanist. I don't know. But my point, I think, will still get across, that it has a designated purpose that is meant to do something. These petals can't run off and do whatever they want. Uh, and in that respect, we are all, to some extent, predetermined. We all exist according to the law of cause and effect. Therefore, we are always going to be determined by some previous instance. Nothing is totally free. So here, you know, it's like, what is free? Perhaps the propensity for thought itself is an extent is an example of freedom. Who knows? But this is what we have. Okay, and that puts us into our final definition before actually like getting into the meat here. Uh, eternity. Definition number eight, eternity. 
Eternity is existence because existence is an eternal truth. That is, we are all instants on the line of God's eternity, of nature's eternity. So things exist eternally for Spinoza, which if you're a Kantian, you're like, oh God, really? We're still, we're, that's what's been, this is why Kant wrote the first critique, I think, uh, reading this. Because, you know, we don't know if things are infinite. We don't know if space is infinite. We don't know if matter, I assume matter isn't infinite, but we don't know how far it extends. We don't know if there was a starting point to the universe. We have no idea. And, it, you know, we can't say for sure if it was, if it's infinite. But in any case, this is, this is his idea about uh, eternity. Now, this will push us from the definitions into the axioms before moving into the propositions where he lays out the fundamental principles to take away from these definitions, to take away from the following axioms. But I want to mention first that in all of this, it's important to remove ourselves from the idea that God does things deliberately. Uh, we have to remember that God doesn't love anyone <laughs> as brutal as that we'll talk about that more in one of the later parts but for spinoza god is indifferent to us entirely god doesn't love anything god just exists and so it's just does whatever it wants so this is why like in a lot of ways spinoza found himself in hot water for what he was saying although very religious at the same time he was very critical of standard religious doctrine in determining people's relationship to the divine. Uh, Spinoza, I think, was trying to craft a way for people to have their own relationship to God. Uh, and so he wants us to think about God as part of nature itself, as part of everything, not just some dude, some white dude, as, as he's so often depicted in, you know, the European settings, America's, you know, uh, depicted as a white guy sitting on a cloud casting judgment on people. All of that would actually be beneath God. If there was a God, would would not care about anything humans are doing. Which doesn't mean that for Spinoza, his, his, oh God, it's, there isn't a way for him. He thinks that there's a way for us to live in the best possible way, according to God slash nature, so that we live our best lives. Now, the other thing I want to mention before moving into the axioms is that besides substances and modes, nothing exists. So it's important that, because I already mentioned substances and modes, uh, nothing exists and modes are nothing but modifications of God's attributes. So as we set out God's attributes already, we have thought and extension or, you know, taking up space. Beyond that, everything that we see in the world are just individual instances of these attributes of God. So, no, But nothing else exists beyond that. Like, we are all just part of that system. If anything existed beyond that, then there would be, like, another God who created it or some other system that would we wouldn't have any knowledge of. So just putting that out there. All right, so the axiom. Wow, was that loud? <laughs> okay, Jesus. All right, axioms. Axiom number one, all things exist in themselves or in or by something else. That is, a thing is either the cause of itself or caused by something else. There's no other way that something comes into being. All right, axiom number two, 
that which cannot be conceived through another must be conceived through itself. So if something isn't thought, can't be thought of being created by something else, it must have been created uh, by itself, like nature itself or the entirety of the universe. If it's not created by anything, it must have come into existence through itself, which is already pretty magnificent. Like if you think back to the, the even the Big Bang implies that there were things like atoms that, you know, banged together and created what we know in the universe. At least I think that that's, I think that's correct for what, the Big Bang. And I think it's correct as a theory as well. But in any case, it still implies that there were these things floating around beforehand, these atoms that, you know, there or these like intense balls of energy. But then we must ask, where did they come from? And so we have this endless chain of, of this problem we, we might never have the answer to, which is really tragic. But in any case, <laughs> if something isn't determined by something else, we must then suggest or entertain the idea that it came about through itself. That puts us into number three, axiom number three. Causes produce effects. Every effect must have a cause, which I already explained. Seems easy enough. You can't have an effect without a cause. Number four, we can only understand the effect by understanding a cause. We cannot fully understand something unless we understand the means by which it came into existence. Maybe the purpose is attached to it. What, you know, what is it meant to do? Uh, otherwise, we will always be limited in understanding something, which is why we might always be limited in understanding life. We might always be limited in understanding the universe because we might never know why the universe existed why the stars aligned in such a way as to permit life to grow potentially on this planet and this planet alone which is like you know when you think about that it's like one in as ever many ones and zeros you can fit on the earth's surface if you're just writing them in the sand like the odds are like unbelievably low yet it happened and we might never really understand why as long as we don't understand, you know, how it happened. Puts us here into axiom number five. Two things without any similarities cannot be investigated to learn anything about one through the other. So if they're totally different, we can't, I can't learn what a coffee mug is by looking at a pencil. Uh, I assume not. <laughs> Maybe someone can do it, but that's his point. Number six, a true idea must agree with that of which it is an idea. So if you listened to my last episode, you would have heard the whole spiel about Peter, seeing Peter down the road. A true idea is an idea in our head about something real or possibly real. So I can have a true idea of like a building I want to build and I could, you know, lay it out architecturally and it's perfectly sound. This is the true idea of a possible thing. Or you can have a true idea of a thing existing in the world. Whereas just an idea could be based off of another idea. And so we are being, we are removing ourselves from the physical world in which we can find uh, nature's laws working and we can test those laws because the further removed we get from it, the more we can get into speculation, we can lead ourselves astray, we can be concerned with things that don't matter, yada, yada, yada. Number seven. Axiom number seven, our last axiom. If an essence can be conceived as not existing, 
then it does not involve existence. So if something doesn't have an essence, then it doesn't exist. It's not a thing. Everything has an essence. Because otherwise a thing, if it existed without an essence, it would just be very sad and lonely in in the universe. It would just it, it would be horrible. And if there can be an essence without necessarily an existence. So, for example, humanity... To be human means to be part of the broader constellation of humanity. Now, humanity has a certain essential characteristics, you know, certain things about humans that are all the same, uh, at least provided that there's no, like, disability or anything like that, but some basic, you know, premises for humans. Or actually, no, this there's no exception. Uh, for humans is that you take up space and you <laughs> you have a mind. Uh, and so in that case, each human is an ex existence belonging to this broader essence. And each existence can be different, and all humans are different. And so from this is implied that no human can exist without corresponding to the essence of humanity. However, humans can just not exist. Like, there's no guarantee that a certain person will be born. Like, you know, I can't say in 10 years there will be someone with these qualities born. Like, no one can know. And so from that, we can imply that essence doesn't necessarily imply existence. There's, a you know, a human essence. But that doesn't mean that every single human is going to be born. Like, I hope I'm being clear because it's super obvious in my head. But I worry uh, there's infinite possibilities almost of humans being born, but only a few end up being born. Anyways, whatever. Conceived, born, you know, you get it. Uh, so we can't have existence without essence, but we can have essence without existence. We don't necessarily need humans to keep being born, at least not every kind, yet there's still the essence of humanity. God, okay. Now, into the propositions, the real bread and butter here. So I'm going to go through these one by one because there's no other way to present this text. If you, it's just a list. So we got to go through it like a list. Proposition one. Now, in, okay, in instances where Spinoza is clear in what he's saying, I'm just reading his words and then I explain them. There will be moments though where he's not clear. And so I've, I've made them clear by doing research, like by, you know, trying to find out what the hell he's saying in some of them. So, this way you're going to know what's going on with every single one. And I'm not going to say every time when I'm just reading his words, because that's going to take forever. So, you know, if there's anything you're curious about, you can find this book online pretty easily. And then you can uh, just check because they're all numbered. You'll find it in five seconds. But I want to assure you that every single one is pretty much aligned with what he wrote. Okay, so proposition one. Substance is by its nature prior to its modifications seems easy substance can't uh has to exist before there can be modifications of it so like god's substance like with the mind and with extension in space uh you can't have modifications of it or modes with humans before that substance existed easy enough number two two substances with different attributes have nothing in common with one another S simple enough they have different attributes. They are 
going to be different. So, like, I have a different mind from someone else. We are... That's... That's that. <laughs> Number three. Two substances with nothing in common be the cannot be the cause of the other. So, I, you know, if we are totally different, I cannot necessarily be the cause of something that is totally different from me in terms of substance. So, for example, a body can't create a mind. I can't create a mind. I can create a body that houses a mind if, like, I ever had children, uh, but I cannot, as a substance, as extension, as body, cannot create a mind, and a mind can't create a body. It's only when they work together. However, a mind can give birth to other minds in its brain, and bodies can give birth to other bodies, I guess. But the point here being that two substances with nothing in common, they, they can't be the cause of the other. All right, proposition four. Two things are distinct because of their difference in attributes or difference in modification. So like with bodies, people are of different sizes, shapes. Uh, with minds, people think differently. These are different attributes. These are different different modes of, you know, the, of attributes. And so therefore, we can see how they differ in that respect. And this may all seem very, you might be hearing this and like, why does this matter? And it's, it's really a slog. It's uh, brutal. I hope you'll stick with me the whole time because it will make sense as we go on because he's trying here to lay out what is required to live the best life. And you have to know all this for Spinoza in order to arrive at this point. But on to proposition five. In nature, there cannot be two or more substances of the same nature or attribute, simply because there is really one substance, and that that substance is nature itself. Uh, and any mode or what he also calls an affectation is only a specific uh, moment of that one substance. Okay, proposition six. One substance cannot be produced by another substance. So, if so, we would need knowledge of original substance to, uh, as cause to understand substance under investigation. Because we don't really know, right, this origin that well, and in that case, we wouldn't be able to actually emulate it and to recreate it. I mean, only God can do that. Number seven, it pertains to the nature of substance to exist. And his point is that because substance is its own cause, its existence is synonymous with its essence. It is the cause of itself. And this is referring as well just to the entirety of nature being the cause of itself. It pertains to its very essence to exist. It must exist as, because it is the cause of itself. Okay, number eight. Every substance is necessarily infinite because if not, there would be another substance of the same attribute, which would be absurd. So if substance wasn't infinite, so if, like when referring to extension, if space wasn't infinite, then there'd be something that exists outside of it that presses up against it, which would is like, what could there be besides space, right? Even outside of space, for my own mind, if I imagine the edge to the universe, I still imagine like a void, which implies space on the other end, on the other side of of the universe barrier, if, it, if there is a barrier. So in any case, 
That's his point. Now, as a separate point here, we cannot necessarily infer the reason that there is any number of things in the world, like number of people, existences, the number of, I don't know, the, the number of houses, whatever, you know, we can't necessarily know even from their essence how many there will be because, you know, that's not ours to determine. Like, it's just how things are. Okay, proposition number nine. The more reality or being a thing possesses, so a thing can possess, possess more reality or being, the more attributes belong to it. Now, this is a very complicated idea and it will become more clear as we go on. But to give you a sneak peek and to know where we're going with this book, Spinoza is trying to find a way for us to understand that to live the proper life as humans, we must house the possibility for action, as he calls it, for the ability to exist in the world according to its laws, to move, to uh, just to exist, which implies action. You can't exist if you're totally stagnant not thinking, not moving, or anything, um, like down to the level of your cells, these things have to be working or else you'd be dead, essentially. So this is in our nature to exist, to act. So the more that we act, therefore the more being we possess, the more reality we have, as he just said it. So let me repeat it. Um, the more reality or being a thing possesses, the more attributes belong to it. That would mean that we've been affected by more things and we have more qualities as a result of that, which is part of our essence as humans, to always be pursuing new knowledge, new ideas, new experiences. And as we do that, we learn more about the world. As we learn more about the world, we become more harmonious with God, with the nature. So that's what he means by possessing more reality and therefore possessing more attributes or modes. Now that puts us here into Proposition 10, each attribute of a substance must be conceived through itself. So, for example, the intellect only perceives of substance through its attribute that constitute its essence. So there's no cause for our mind other than the mind itself, which is like such, such a brain bender in my mind. But in any case, you can only think it through itself. It only comes into being through itself. Proposition 11. God or substance consisting of infinite attributes, each one of which expresses eternal infinite essence, necessarily exists. And that is just nature. Like, we know that there is existence in the world, and this is what he refers to as necessarily existing. He says it's infinite. Is it necessarily infinite? I have no idea. But the idea here being that space being infinite, uh, all things, all possible things being infinite, Therefore, uh, they must necessarily exist. Okay, number 12. No attribute of substance can be truly conceived from which it follows that substance can be divided. That is because if any one of these substances, substances to break it into separate substances, you know, to divide it, on account of their attributes, it would erase their infinite quality as substance. So we have to always keep in mind that there is this universal substance of which there are these parts, not as though the substance is being divided. We are just parts of this substance. So it's not like there are, there's one substance here, another substance over there. We are all part of the same soup of substance in the universe. All right, number 13. Substance absolutely 
infinite is indivisible. So this is the same point as above. It's not divisible. Number 14. Besides God, no substance can be nor can be conceived. Because that's just how we work as humans. Like, we only have these two capacities for thought and for extension in space. At least our universal substances, uh, attributes bestowed to us by God. You know, not, not as though it's God's will, but being part of nature. These, this is what we have. There might be more. We just don't have any idea what they would be like because, you know, we're human. We're limited. We can only experience what we can experience and think what we can think. But it's important, like, Spinoza wouldn't totally agree with that point because for him, he's so sure about these being, like, the substances. And because God is infinite, there's no room for any other possible substances. Whereas my point, more influenced by Kant, is like, I don't know, there might be more. Like, I, I have no idea. But this is what we can be sure of now based off of what we are as humans, what we're capable of. So number 15, whatever is, is in God. And nothing can either be or be conceived without God. So, you know, the point he makes is that against some who have said that bodies are separate from God is infinite because they are finite, because God is infinite and my body is limited, um, or, you know, separate from, or vice versa, however we want to think about this. Spinoza doesn't like these ideas because they imply a separation between us and God. He, he, he suggests that these perspectives fail to see how all corporeal things, all physical things in the universe, uh, and beings of, are, are beings of one single substance, that is, God, or part of nature. So nothing can be totally separate from that one universal substance. Okay, number 16. God's infinite nature implies infinite number of things in infinite ways to the infinite intellect. So the infinite intellect being that uh, kind of infinite mode that God possesses, whereas we just have our mind, which is just a finite mode. And then infinite number of things in infinite ways is the infinite mode referring to extension uh, for God, to space. And the idea here simply being that if God is infinite, which we have to accept if we're reading Spinoza, if God is infinite, then therefore all possibility emanating from God can be infinite as well. Number 17, God acts by the laws of his own nature only and is compelled by no one. So it's obvious everything God permits is true because they're God and they determine everything. If, and therefore God furnishes both something's existence and its essence. Humans, by contrast, you know, us lowly humans, can only make things exist. Like I can create a chair, but I'm not necessarily going to provide the essence of a chair. Like I don't, how would you even do that? Okay, number 18. God is the imminent and not the transient cause of all things. So God for Spinoza is not like out there, right? We're thinking God, we're thinking nature, we're thinking of the world and universe, things that we can touch and feel, like things that exist, yet is the totality of all of those things. So we are all part of God as a totality. And so we have to not deify God as being like separate in this other realm and just like sprinkles in, like, like in the Bible, like just steps in, in these moments to essentially demonstrate his own indecisive nature. Like, oh, we kill all the humans on the planet. 
oh no they're good now oh kill them all again like just horrendous stuff that if there was a god spinoza's god is not looking like the biblical god which i don't know someone might rip my head off for that but that's that's not the kind of god we find here all right number 19 god is eternal or in other words all his attributes are eternal his 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 apparently the non-corporeal god that is you know tantamount to nature is a him so what he means here is that as attributes that express the essence of the divine substance of god that is infinite so too must the attributes themselves be infinite there must be infinite possibilities emanating from infinite god number 20 god's existence and essence are the same because they are the god exists according absolutely to its essence if god exists of course the assumption is yes here 21 all things attached to any of god's attributes must always exist and be infinite the same as what we've already said many times and there's going to be many moments where these propositions are the same like their proof their explanation is the same as a previous one 22 Anything that follows from this attribute is necessarily existing and infinite. So if it's coming from the infinite, it must be infinite. Any mode, number 23, sorry. Any mode that is necessary and infinite emerges from necessary and infinite attribute or even one that has been modified. So similarly, you know, the infinite can't come from the finite. You can't have a finite thing create an infinite thing. That just wouldn't make any sense. Number 24. The essence of things produced by God does not involve existence. So this is like that idea where, you know, there's a human essence, but that doesn't necessarily mean that all humans will exist. All kinds of humans, all possibilities, only some will actually end up existing. So that'll put us here into number 25. God is not only the efficient cause of the existence of things, but also of their essence. God creates essence. Simple as that. Number 26, that something acts in a particular way has to be by God's will or the sufficient cause by God's will. So if something something itself has to exist according to God's will uh, or have been created by it or by something else, which is in accordance with God's will, nothing can be the total condition of itself. Only God can really. And that puts us into number 27, a thing which has been determined by God to any action cannot render itself indeterminate so the idea here is that um everything will be determined by god to some extent it's not as though something can exist outside of it and be indeterminate and that puts us into number 28 there's an infinite chain of cause and effect where a finite and determined thing will always have been produced or acted upon by another forever like there's an infinite chain of cause and effect seems uh, I guess easy enough, but there's a problem here for me because Spinoza also writes of this chain, this infinite chain of cause and effect, that no one of these finite causes could come from infinite attribute unless it be determined to existence and action by God or by some attribute of God insofar as the attribute is modified by a modification which is finite. So if we go down the chain of cause and effect, eventually we're going to arrive at the point in which God created something. So this must have come about, then it's not like a problem, just a point of clarification. It came about because of God's will to have created something by virtue of a modification that is 
by nature going to be finite. Um, therefore, it gave birth to this possibility of finite things uh, from an infinite God, from infinite God's will. So 29, in nature, nothing is contingent. Everything is determined by divine nature to exist and act in a certain manner. So, you know, God can't be contingent. God doesn't create anything to be contingent. It all exists according to nature's laws. Nothing exists outside of it. Number 30, the actual intellect, whether finite or infinite, must comprehend the attributes of God and the modifications of God and nothing else. So that is to say that because the true idea must mirror thing represented, like a true idea has to be the idea of a thing in the world, the actual intellect must be aware of God because it came to us from God. So we have it within us to comprehend God by virtue of the fact that we are, you know, modifications of God's own intellect. That puts us here into number 31. Actual in, in intellect, either finite or infinite, alongside will, desire, love, etc., refers to the natura naturata, not the natura naturans. So let me say that again. The natura naturata refers to the actual intellect alongside things like love, fear, joy, sorrow. So the natura naturata refers to that, and it implies dependence on something else, God, in this case, whereas the natura naturans is something that is cause of itself. So the actual intellect is caused by God and doesn't cause itself. So the natura naturata is one of those things. Number 32. The will cannot be called a free cause, but can only be called necessary. So that is to say that it is dependent on causes. The will is dependent on causes. So God does not act according to will as determined by cause. So this is why God's will is not really a will in the way that we understand it, because a will is going to be determined by causes. But because God is the cause of all causes, it doesn't. Uh, it is not subject to a will. It just exists and operates as it sees fit. Number 33, things could have been produced by God in no other manner and in no other order than that in which they have been produced, which is to suggest that, you know, if one were to suggest an alternative, this would imply that God is imperfect, that God did not create the totality of all possibility, instead decided to create something that is uh, limited, leaving more room for possibility. So everything that we have right now is in itself perfect. And this will lead uh, Spinoza to say things that like, the poor person shouldn't be upset with the rich person because it's all part of God's plan, yada, yada, yada. One of these people just be fine with all the injustices in the world. It doesn't matter because it's just God's will. But then at other times, Spinoza will really advocate for like the importance of maintaining freedom of speech. And it's like, well, okay, how on the one hand are you saying there needs to be this concerted effort to protect this thing? And on the other hand, you'd say something that like poor, and we'll get into this more later, uh, that poor people just need to accept the fact that they're poor and this that's just it. It's really, you know, it's what we got here though. So number 34, the power of God is his essence itself. That is like, it's, it's kind of like a Mobius strip because God's power is its essence, and its essence is God's power. These two things are the same. Number 35, 
whatever we conceive to be in God's power necessarily exists. So that is to say that that which is in its power is in accordance with its essence. So it must therefore exist. Number 36, nothing exists from whose nature and effect does not follow. So his explanation is that whatever exists expresses the nature or the essence of God in a certain and determinate manner as the power of God and so some effect must follow from it. There's nothing that exists that does not produce some effect, even in the fact of taking up space. It is existing in the world and then is able to be effective, even if just by someone seeing it. The butterfly effect might be the easiest way to explain that in a very colloquial manner. And those were all the propositions for part one. And now we have a brief little appendix. And then we'll close this off and next week pick up from part two. So... In the appendix, Spinoza outlines that he is against people who suggest that nature is designed for us. God didn't design it for us. As though the sun was made for us, for example. Like, the sun exists for us. For Spinoza, nothing exists in an end if that end is perceived to be humans. We are all part of the same game here. It's not like we are better than the sun or than the bugs or whatever. We are all part of the same order. So in his words, nature has no set end before itself, and therefore, or all final causes are nothing but human fictions. So the idea that there are these like ends and final causes is just totally fictitious. It's made up for Spinoza. The problem for Spinoza is that it would diminish God's perfection, locating perfection in the ends as they benefit humans. It would essentially be to make us gods, as though we are God, and everything works according to us. And it's from here that we open the possibility for Spinoza for us to say that some things are like inherently good or inherently evil, which is a way to, for us to just play God, which is really just our expression of certain cultural norms that we have come to believe to be good versus some deemed evil which has actually only come about because of various different histories that have promoted such ideas. Instead, Spinoza suggests that the perfection of things is to be judged by their nature and power alone, not how they make humans feel. So to conclude, I just want to briefly read a passage from the appendix that outlines what we've done here to give you an idea. So he explains here that he has expressed the nature of God and its properties. He has shown that God necessarily exists, that God is one God, that from the necessity alone of God's nature, God is and God acts. He, God exists, God is, and in what way God exists. The free causes of all things, that all things are in God, and so depend upon God, that without God they can neither be nor can be conceived. And finally, that all things have been predetermined by God, not indeed from freedom of will or from absolute good pleasure, but from God's absolute nature or infinite power, nature's laws, right? Determining what is possible. Yeah, that'll end us off here. Let me know what you think. Do you buy it? Do you agree with Spinoza? We haven't finished the book yet, of course, but I'd love to know what you think. If there's anything I got wrong, anything I excluded, I'd love to hear about it. If you like what I did, like, share, subscribe, and yeah, see you next week for part two. Take care.